This episode of Interphase is brought to you by Audible.com, your source for the best audiobooks, including unabridged readings of the latest novels from the incredible family of Star Trek authors. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help this show and the network at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. TFM Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Interphase, our Star Trek Universe podcast dedicated to all the new content being released, as well as the best 50-plus years of adventures that have made the franchise what it is today and are, of course, the reason we love it so much. I'm C. Brian Jones, or Chris, and I'm joined today by another Chris, Chris Chaplin, to talk about two of those past Star Trek series, Voyager and Deep Space Nine. Chris, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me on, Chris. So we've been chatting a little bit off mic, and we were talking about how when it comes to the discussion of serialization in Star Trek, which is a big topic these days with Discovery and Picard, of course, Deep Space Nine is always the go-to series, at least prior to those two newer ones. And the original series was famously episodic. The Next Generation, for the most part, followed that same pattern. And DS9 itself barely moved away from that model in the first season, but then things started to change. And by the time Voyager came around, the winds of serialization were blowing. But how do these two TNG spinoffs compare when it comes to story and character threads? that span the series. And that's the question that we decided to discuss today. So I'm really looking forward to your thoughts on this because I think you have a lot of them. Yeah. And definitely as a Voyager fan, kind of sometimes Voyagers look down upon because it lacks the serialization of Deep Space Nine as if it's less sophisticated in some ways, like a storytelling is of the past. So I do have some thoughts about Voyager and serialization for sure. We should point out at the start of this, now you do a video series called Why Voyager? Mm -hmm. And the purpose of that is? Um, The purpose of that is to really just argue why Voyager, why it should be respected, why it should be viewed and seen as an essential part of the Star Trek franchise, just like Deep Space Nine and TNG and TOS and Alpha Card and Discovery, all those. Do you still feel that, I know what you're talking about because over the years, there was definitely that period of time where, and it's been since we've been doing this network, actually, that uh, Voyager was kind of, I don't want to say looked down upon, but it was dismissed in comparison with DS9, with TNG, with the original series, because I think some fans felt like it was a remake of a remake of a remake, kind of revisiting the same themes over and over, and it had become watered down a bit. I myself am guilty of having that feeling at times, and recently I did a full Voyager rewatch for the first time, and I was pleasantly surprised to be reminded of 
how much territory, kind of new territory, Voyager charted in its early seasons and how fresh some of those science fiction ideas were, despite there having been so many hundreds of Star Trek stories ahead of that. So in light of sort of this resurgence of Star Trek fandom that we've been seeing with Discovery and Picard and Lower Decks and Star Trek Day, which we had last week, and everyone's getting <laughs> oh, so excited. So great. Do you feel that's still the case, or do you feel like more people are are coming back around to Voyager even and championing that series more? In the corners of Twitter that I hang out on, Voyager is spoken of more positively than I saw when I first got on Twitter three years ago. So I, I think you're right. I think there's an overwhelming optimism about the franchise in general because we need something to be optimistic about. Of course, there's corners that negative yeah. about everything, but I think you're right. I think there's a change there. Yeah, it feels like it to me. And of course, Deep Space Nine has gained a lot of respect in recent years, mm -hmm. I think largely due to the ability to binge watch it on mm -hmm. Netflix and other streaming services. And a lot of fans looked down on Deep Space Nine when it was on TV and dismissed it and said, oh, I'm not going to watch that. And so they never did. And some people watched the early seasons and they couldn't get into it. And then they left it behind and they never saw the greatness that came. Mm -hmm. And recently, though, you hear a lot of people talk about how DS9 is the best Star Trek. And I think that the reason people say that, and of course, I'm one of those people. Everyone knows I'm a Niner and I host <laughs> our Deep Space Nine show, The Orb, with Matthew Rushing. But Deep Space Nine was not always my favorite Star Trek. It became my favorite Star Trek over the years because of the depth of storytelling, the depth of character development, and the serialization of the story that we started to get as the series went on. And of course, that's the core point. Those two things are the core points we're going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. Serialization of storytelling and character development. Mm -hmm. So picking up on that, Defining serialization, like what does that mean to you? And I know that you've broken it down into four different types of serialization. If there can be considered serialization. <laughs> well, that's what we're going to discuss, right? Uh, we were preparing for this and thinking about what does serialization mean? Does it only mean storytelling, like the Dominion War, for example, mm -hmm. on Deep Space Nine? Does it mean the mini arcs that we sometimes get, where we've got two or three or five episodes, which may or may not be consecutive, that are dealing with the same theme, the same encounter, mm -hmm. the same basic storyline? Does it have to do with themes? Does it have to do with goals of the crew? What does serialization mean? So how do you define it? It's not a question I've ever really thought deeply about. Um, I guess initially, I always thought of Deep Space Nine as the serialized Star Trek. And then, of course, Discovery and Picard now, too. Plot used to be my main driver for what serialization means. The plot's always moving forward. But then when I think about Voyager, I think there is some serialized threads throughout the series of course the back half of season four with the herogen serialized episode with which just has like one episode i think it's retrospect breaking that up from message in a bottle to the killing game part two that to me would be a serialized story within that season 
But then when you get to the end of season four with Hope and Fear, that brings all the character stories together from Scorpion and wraps it all up. So to me, there's an element of serialization there. So when you look at those examples in season four, that's what made me think of beyond plot for serialization. It's character arcs like Seven and Janeway thematic such as what does it mean to be an individual that's a serialized theme throughout voyager and then species interactions you know we have the herogen and and that those several episodes but then you also have species 8472 in, in that season four the first time i really thought about serialized for like species interactions was in season three of next generation they really are building the romulan slowly and and every interaction gets mm-hmm more there's more tension and more at stake and we get tomalak and and all that kind of happens we have this kind of cold war standoff with the romulans in season three that to me seems to be like a serialized development of an interaction between those species so that's kind of my my forming thoughts right now about serialization and how we can maybe expand the definition of it from just consecutive plots going in a line yeah interesting when I think of serialization, I generally think of a story that is drawn out over a long period of time. So the Dominion War mm-hmm. in Deep Space Nine, I think of as being serialized storytelling. The Zindi are the whole third season of Enterprise. Sure. Of course, the first two seasons of Discovery and the first season of Picard are serialized. When I think of... I know we're talking about DS9 and Voyager, but just to go back to the next generation, I never really think of TNG as being serialized. There are threads Mm. that run through the series, and those are important because you want to feel like the universe is being built, for one thing. And you also, you need to have this feeling that you're on some sort of timeline. So time is passing for our characters. Time is passing for the Federation. Things need to happen. And if a series is going to run seven years, but nothing ever changes, then you start to lose that feeling. And as much as I love The Next Generation, from a character standpoint, I feel like that's mostly what we get. Not much changes over the course of seven years. Some things do change. I know people are listening. They're like, no, no, Chris. (laughs) You know, Riker did this, and Troy did this, and Data, and Data. But yeah, those there there are evolutions, no doubt. But if you look at the next series that came along, Deep Space Nine, and you look at what happened to the characters in that show, from Emissary to What You Leave Behind, it's a totally different ballgame. Sure. Voyager, for me, falls somewhere in between. I don't see as many character arcs that are as strong as what we saw on Deep Space Nine, but they're definitely there. And when I did my rewatch, I noticed them a lot more than I remembered them. Yeah, and you made me think at the point of intersection between Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager, and then Generations, you have the building of the Maquis and the Cardassians and the Bajorans. And all these stories are starting to cohere and they come together in Caretaker, right? And then also pay off in what the Maquis 1 and 2 and Deep Space 9. That makes me think mm-hmm. of 
the Marvel Cinematic Universe and how that's a serialized storytelling format on film, um, though they're in different franchises. So th that can even expand our definition of what we might call serialization between the different series. You have character arcs that span different films throughout those films in the MCU, and we have character arcs that span different series in Star Trek because we have Picard touching in at Deep Space Nine and and so on and so forth. O'Brien. Oh, right. Yeah, that. With the Maquis, the Maquis is an interesting point because the Maquis is a great example of how there was synergy between the different Star Trek series during the 90s, what we used to call the golden age of Star Trek. And using one series to set up another series to set up another series. So, you know, DS9, Voyager, they were developed rather close to each other as TNG was going strong. And TNG set up the Bajorans. Mm -hmm. We got Ensign Rowe. Mm -hmm. Then they started setting up the Maquis. We've got Journey's End, Preemptive Strike. They're setting up the Maquis. For Voyager, I would say more so than for DS9. Yes. DS9 really tried to set up the Maquis for Voyager with the two-parter, mm -hmm. the Maquis. But TNG set up the idea of the Bjorans to set up the premise of DS9 as a series mm -hmm. taking place in the Bajor sector. Can we bring this planet in to the Federation. Of course, there was originally the idea that Roe would be the first officer yeah. on the station, which didn't pan out. And then we got Kira instead. What's interesting to me with the Maquis, with the Bajorans in the Maquis, is you've got TNG setting up DS9, then DS9 setting up Voyager. And despite the fact that the Maquis and DS9 was really to kick off the whole premise of Voyager with in Caretaker, you actually have Voyager stopping off at DS9 so they can mm -hmm. go and pursue the Maquis. It's actually DS9 that fleshes out the Maquis and tells the Maquis story, not Voyager. You have Maquis on Voyager, but the actual serialized story of the Maquis continues to take place on DS9 mm -hmm. through eight episodes, ending with the, the final standoff of Eddington and Cisco. Mm -hmm. In Blaze of Glory. But then Voyager picks that up. That's just interesting to me. Voyager picks that up in Message in a Bottle, where they learn that the Maquis were wiped out by an enemy that supplies weapons to the Cardassians. And then they continue yeah, that in Extreme point. Risk yeah. with Valana, you know, acting out based off of that news. So, and, so there's a serial, maybe an arc is a subcategory of serialization or a subcomponent or a feature of serialization yeah and, and we're talking it's just sure. semantics really maybe yeah yeah i mean i, I would agree with that uh, this is a really interesting example that because i i was mainly thinking within series mm -hmm. as we were getting ready to talk about this so was i but the maquis is a wonderful example of of stretching across series with serialization which is something we don't talk about very often as far as characters go I mentioned on TNG that I, I don't see a lot of character growth. Obviously, the characters are more fleshed out, more mature when we get to the end of the series. But when we think about Picard and what he became, 
he really became that in the films. The Picard of the TV series doesn't change all that much over the course of seven seasons. Data changes more. Mm -hmm. You know, he goes from being this automaton that doesn't know the definition of basic words, despite having the entire (laughs) knowledge of Federation in his brain, to (laughs) being uh, a character that's really exploring what it means to be human as the series ends. And then that runs into the films, which is great. Worf grows a bit. Beverly grows a bit in the fact that she finally commands, takes the command program, you know, when she's actually has command of the ship at one point. And, and Troy becomes they, a commander. They did some nice stuff there. And Troy becomes commander. So they did some stuff like that. We get that kind of evolution. But then when you get into DS9, you have things like Cisco, who arrives at Bajor, doesn't really want to be there. And then has this situation thrust upon him where he's a religious icon for the locals, really doesn't want any part of that, goes to fully embrace it by the end and actually fulfill the prophecy that is shared with him in the beginning. Kira, an incredible character evolution, character arc across the series from an angry freedom fighter who doesn't want the Federation to be there to someone who has embraced the Federation, has grown a lot in terms of how she sees her people and their place in the universe, and becomes a much more caring and loving person by the end as well. She changes so much that she puts on a Starfleet uniform and teaches her former occupiers how to be insurgents. So it comes great full circle. And perhaps we could say that Character development is more about a shift in the character's perspective or worldview, right? Their beliefs in something. By the end of Emissary, Cisco sees the world differently, right? By the end of Caretaker, I don't know if the characters see the world differently, really. But I, I will argue that perhaps some characters in Voyager do have a shift in worldview, a shift in beliefs or ideas by the end of Voyager. I don't know if I could argue that exactly at mm-hmm. the end of TNG. Right. Besides Picard coming in and joining his crew and seeing that need to connect. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. In terms of Voyager, so of course we could talk about every individual character yeah. in DS9, but that <laughs> will take you quite a while. Uh, what you just said about Voyager, it's for me, it's on a less grand scale. Like the the themes in DS9 are really big. You know, Cisco and the Bajoran religion, Kira and driving the occupation off of Bajor and then helping the former occupiers at the end. Very big themes. On Voyager, I see things like Tom Paris, one of my favorite characters on Voyager, whose worldview changes a lot. He goes from being this kind of hotshot, I don't really care about things and got in trouble, got put in the penal colony, and now he's given a second chance by Janeway. And pair him with Balana, who's also sort of the the hothead, I you know, I don't really want to be on this starship and fighting with Carrie and all the stuff that happens early in the series. The two of them together by the end have a child together. Like their whole worldview of like what it means to care about other people and what it means to love changes completely over the course of Voyager. And it's a journey that they go on together. I agree. Their love of each other helps them love themselves because Valana really deals with a lot of self-hate based off her, you know, interracial 
status and how she was viewed and grew up and her dad leaving her. So, and then, you know, Tom has issues with his dad. I guess they both have dad issues that they help solve for each other. Well, Tom's dad issues are just based on the fact that his dad keeps a photo of Nick Locarno on his desk <laughs> instead of Tom. A flip, I mean, that's- a flip photo, too. It was backwards, <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird. You you made me think earlier the difference between Voyager and and Deep Space Nine. You said Deep Space Nine is epic and made me think that Deep Space Nine is like – the Iliad versus Voyager is the Odyssey. And both are epics, but one is about war and there's a lot more passions that come out of that. And maybe it tries people more. Maybe that is why it feels more epic and the growth feels more epic. And there's mythological aspects to the storytelling of Deep Space Nine as well. Whereas Voyager, it's just a long road trip. Yeah, I can see what you mean there. I will point out, though, that even though I say DS9 is more epic, as I always tell people, the real core of the DS9 story, though, is not all of that epic war that's sure. going on. It's the characters and how it impacts them on a mm-hmm. personal level. Sure. But but yeah, it is true that there's all this this huge story, the multiple huge stories going on as a backdrop to all of that. Whereas on Voyager, it is more self-contained to the ship, their effort to get home. Mm-hmm. And, and it's also a small ship. In addition to Tom and Balana on Voyager, we have a, a wonderful abbreviated story arc with Seven of Nine because she comes in season four onward. Mm-hmm. So we've only got those four seasons with her, but she grows enormously. Mm-hmm. And with her and the Doctor both, we have characters who start off trying to find themselves and to grow as individuals. And then by the end, we see them doing that in their own different ways. And the doctor is interesting to me because he sort of plays that role of Data on The Next Generation or Spock in the original series of trying to become more human Mm -hmm. and find emotion and find self-expression and such. But in an updated way, whereas with Data in the 80s when it started, we're talking about machines, artificial intelligence, and what would that mean for that to become more human? And then in Voyager, it's still basically the same theme, except we're dealing with sort of more modern technology with the idea of a hologram. And then what would that mean? Because it's it's initially not even tangible, right? You need a story in order to make the doctor tangible mm-hmm. and allow him to go places. Uh, so that's interesting. So there are great story arcs there. Uh, Neelix is a great arc. Absolutely. He grows enormously due to his... I know a lot of people don't like Neelix. They find him annoying. Uh, he can be at times. <laughs> but, early Neelix, like early Bashir. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And part of that is the writing of like finding who the character is. Early Bashir is a case of trying to figure out who the character is. Absolutely. And early Bashir seems to be there to serve a certain purpose of having that sort of Riker ladies man type element. <laughs> which they quickly realized maybe didn't fit the show as well, and they evolved him into something else. Maybe he needed a beard. <laughs> right. So character arcs is another element that could fall under the idea of serialization, but I don't really consider it serialization myself. I just consider it an important element of telling a good story Yeah, that doesn't have to 
to be part of a continuous story. You can have, actually, it's what kind of disappoints me about The Next Generation. You can have episodic storytelling or primarily episodic storytelling and still build your characters through that format. You don't have to have a a Dominion War type Mm -hmm. serialized story or a We Gotta Get Ourselves Home Voyager type story where everyone is just so much of life has to take place in this confined space with less uh, interaction with familiar species and like the politics of, of the Federation like we see in The Next Generation. Now, you mentioned at the beginning thematic serialization, which is something that I hadn't really considered very much, but I think it's a very interesting idea. So when you talk about thematic serialization, what do you mean? Yeah, this one, um, when I was just kind of brainstorming this outline, I didn't quite know what I meant there. But when you think about the broad scope of Voyager, the overall theme that keeps cropping up is the desire to get home. So that is a serialized idea that keeps coming up constantly. And usually we're disappointed every time (laughs) Um, until like season six, when we start finally making contact with the Federation. But that's kind of what I was thinking there. And and then you also think about 709, like you said before, we only got her from four through seven, but the serialized progression of the exploration of what it means to be an individual, what it means to be human. I mean, I guess that would be the serialized theme of all Star Trek. What does it mean to be human? It kind of ties it all together. When I was rewatching and writing my video essay for The Gift, near the end, seven literally says, I don't know what it means to be human. And I took that as like the mm-hmm. dramatic premise of that whole character, that that was the mission of that character. That was the serialized story of that character from season four onward. So that was what I was thinking. Internally for the character of Seven, mm-hmm. right? Not, not necessarily the role or the purpose of the character in the broader storytelling, because I think a key purpose of having Seven of Nine on the show was to give Janeway someone who could teach Janeway something. Mm, interesting because prior to that Janeway was very much like the mother of the crew mm-hmm. in a sense because she felt the need to to take care of everyone because she had stranded them there and of course because she's the captain she's the top of the authority she was rarely challenged right that's yeah that's that's my point she was rarely challenged and bringing seven in gave an outside voice a human voice that could challenge her sort of in the way a, a child would challenge their parent because seven is learning to be human. And seven's outside the hierarchical rank structure because Chicote challenges right. Janeway often, but seven doesn't in a whole different way. Yeah. And, and Janeway doesn't listen to Chicote very much. <laughs> and, and then he doesn't push back because he's, he's Starfleet. So it's the chain of command. Like I'm the first officer. Here's what I think we should do. You're not going to listen to me. So, okay, you're the captain. You just tell me what to do and well, I'll follow your orders. That's, I, I got to push against that. For the that. most part. Scorpion and Equinox, he definitely pushes against and he gets right. sent to his quarters both times. Yeah. Yeah. There are situations, those two, for example, where he does push back against her. But it feels like it's like a building And it needs to be a situation where he just really, really strongly feels that she's wrong. And I also think it happens after he's really settled into his role as first officer more. Yeah. It doesn't happen in the early seasons. 
Well, it happens in Parallax, and, uh, where it, he argues with her that Balana needs to be chief engineer. That's the second episode of the series. But then it kind of goes away for a while. Yeah, that's an interesting one because I always read that one. It, it's so early on mm-hmm. that it's less first officer versus captain and it's still more Maquis versus Starfleet. It's sure. still more like... And, and of course, we know that he and Balana had some close relationship. Mm-hmm. So it's more like he's standing up for Balana, not necessarily standing up for some greater principle that he feels is right or wrong. You know, like when he says we should just find a planet, like in your year of hell, we have to just, we might have to settle here, right? Maybe we can't keep going on. When he starts to talk about those trade-offs, should we try to get home? Should we make a home in the Delta Quadrant? Mm-hmm. You know, Janeway's just determined to get home no matter what. But I think Chakotay has a more practical view of the situation often, but he's not listened to generally. Unfortunately. Okay, let me throw out a a fun thematic serialization <laughs> idea that pops into my head from DS9. Quark's pursuit of profit. Ooh. We have all these moments throughout DS9 where he's come up with some new scheme to make profit, like when he reprograms the replicators so he has his logo <laughs> on all the mugs that come out. That could be thematic serialization. Well, I think I think... I think what we're getting at is perhaps character arcs, thematic arcs, species interactions, plot, they're all components of serialization. And Deep Space Nine just has the most condensed expression of all of these happening at once, especially season four onward. So maybe that's why Mm, people feel like it's the more serialized one. That's my first thought. So that's thematic serialization. We're not going to go into great detail on this, but I think it's a great conversation starter. And it would be very interesting to hear from listeners what they see as thematic serialization in Star Trek, especially uh, DS9 and Voyager. So species interactions, you mentioned earlier how the next generation started building up encounters with Romulans, for example. Yeah, starting with the neutral zone, um, that, that ends with them saying, we're back. And then we see them creeping up occasionally. We have the defector and um, the enemy and a bunch of episodes where they're just popping up a, a lot in a, in a dense amount in TNG season three. So that was the first thing that came to mind. Of course, it kind of never culminates in anything in, D, uh, in TNG. So you could kind of forget that that happens because it doesn't culminate really. But it's definitely there in season three. Well, not much of anything culminates in anything in TNG. That's that's the result. Yeah. It's an interesting point, too. Yeah. When we talk about whether we need serialized storytelling or is episodic storytelling enough for Star Trek, it, it does depend what you want to get out of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll talk about this towards the end. Yeah. But in TNG... You do have these encounters with Romulans or Cardassians, or they they do start establishing things that pay off in the later series, mm-hmm. but not much culminates in anything except by the end of the next generation. Except for the trial of humanity, right? I wonder if TNG yeah. would see, be so highly regarded if it didn't have all good things where it culminates the whole journey in a kind of a, a retcon kind of way almost. 
um, that the, the trial never ended? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think it would be regarded just as highly as a series because that's only one episode. But that episode is an example of how they took something that was not really intended. The Q element was put into Encounter and Farpoint because the episode was running short and they needed another element. It's hard to imagine TNG without the Q element yeah. at the start of the series, but that's almost how it started. And then the writers did a phenomenal job of tying the first thread into the last thread and and pulling it all full circle. Mm-hmm. And uh, that also works because of Patrick Stewart and John Delancey and how they play off of each other. But yeah, the trial of humanity, that's a, a really good observation because when you look at all of the episodic stories throughout the series, that's what it is. You can file very much of it under the trial of humanity. How do you handle this individual situation that you've been thrown into, this one-off situation, but how did you handle it? How did you treat the alien races that you had to interact with? How did you treat each other? How did you solve the problem? So if there is one bit of serialization from start to finish in the next generation, I guess that's the one, right? Well, and yeah, I think so. And I, I brought up all good things because I'm a big fan of Stargate SG-1. I don't know if you've seen that series. And I'm not a big fan of the very last episode. And so for me, it's hard to go back and watch that series because it culminates in something I don't, I'm not fulfilled by. And it kind of reduces the whole thing, a, a, just a peg. So that, that's why I pose that question. But I think you're right. TNG is strong in, in, in its individual episodic stories on its own that it could sustain without all good things. I think for me, the example similar to that would be Lost, where yes, yes, you, you go on this long journey and then you get to the end. And while I can watch the finale to that series and find it interesting from a kind of a philosophical or a metaphysical standpoint, I also was left feeling like, why did I just watch all of this? Like, <laughs> you, you just... You just make up an ending, <laughs> make up an explanation. Like I want more of a of a payoff at the end where I feel like there was a purpose behind everything that I watched and everything that I was told. So I hear you there. But returning to species interactions, so TNG started giving us this concept of meeting different species time after time and building it up. More so than what we saw in the original series. You know, we, we had a little bit with the Klingons. The Klingons don't appear as often in the original series as people think they do. Yeah. You know, our memory has become skewed by the films and then TNG's portrayal of the Klingons. And we have twice with the Romulans in the original series, right? Yeah. In the original series, we get the Romulans in Balance of Terror, the Deadly Years. But it's only a mention in the Deadly Years, okay. so they're not actually appearing. But they do mention them anyway. So there's like that kind of slight like universe building there that hey these guys are out there and uh then there's the enterprise incident of course with the commander who won't tell spock her name (laughs) but then we go to voyager and we do have interactions that are serialized like i mentioned before i I think the herogen are definitely the strongest serialization in terms of like a condensed story arc apart from the borg like constant borg encounters Yeah. yeah But like the Herogen tell one kind of story. It's all building to the hunt of uh, the killing game. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Yeah. That's a good point because we see, you know, we probably see the Kazon more than the Hirogen, I believe. But the Kazon story doesn't really take you anywhere. Whereas the Hirogen story actually is building to something. Mm-hmm. And same with the Borg. And also those stories. Yeah. And then there's the Borg, which does build to something, of course, to the finale. The Borg are interesting to me because they give us different things. They give us seven of nine. Mm-hmm which is a character that then goes on her own course, which always has a board component to it. But her story is uh, different from simply Starfleet encountering the Borg. Mm-hmm. And then they also go down that path, which is picking up what the next generation did with I Borg with Hugh, the idea of, someone who used to be Borg and how now we can interact with them. And then we have these stories in Voyager where we deal with people who have been separated from the collective in different ways. Of course, we've got the kids who come on the ship, but we've also got, uh, we find people on planets. We go to Unimatrix Zero. We, they're, they're able to use the Borg to explore issues of humanity and self-identity in different ways, without it being the face-off between Starfleet and Borg through space battles or just, you know, hand-to-hand, are they going to assimilate us? Let's figure out how we can shoot at them for longer before they get us. You know, we can get away from that. And then we have just that also. You know, we have, okay, the Borg are attacking us with their ship. We've got to get away. We have a bit of that as well. So, So really... Uh, the Borg, the use of the Borg, which I have criticized in the past as being a crutch <laughs> to boost ratings because we need to get something familiar. It's fair. And what is it that we know from past Star Trek can be found in the Delta Quadrant that fans love? Oh, it's the Borg. But if you really think about the way Voyager used the Borg, the writers did a good job of taking this one element and and using it to explore multiple science fiction concepts through the series. And I would say the story of the Borg culminates with the first season of Picard, where we see the the drones as victims, right? And we see that in Unimatrix and through Seven, of course, too. Yeah. The Borg are the ultimate users. What I would say about the Borg is, I've heard the argument that Voyager weakens and kind of ruins the Borg. And I, I get that, but I think Boy, uh, Janeway said it in Scorpion, the Borg adapt through assimilation and humans adapt through study and research. And so I think it's this core humanistic Roddenberry view of the human condition where we will continue to progress and learn and adapt. And eventually, given time and the right conditions, we will overcome these insurmountable problems, right? So that's kind of a, maybe perhaps a, a trial of humanity, broader thematic serialization for the, within the larger Star Trek universe explored in Voyager, started in TNG. Yeah, I've, I have said before that Voyager defanged the Borg. I think the Borg were originally interesting because they were this faceless enemy. Mm-hmm. And Iborg is interesting because we get the idea of what does it mean for an individual person who's been assimilated to break free of that. 
someone other than Picard because he was only assimilated for a short time. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, Descent, I'm not particularly a big fan of Neither. that episode. With Voyager, I just feel like they used the Borg so often that Voyager had to be able to get away from them. And Voyager is a smaller ship than the Enterprise D, and they're alone. They don't have any backup, and yet somehow they can always get away. That was a bit of a stretch for me. And then when when Janeway started negotiating with the Borg, that was a bit too much mm. because then the Borg become like everyday political entity, like the Romulans or the Klingons or the Cardassians mm. or whoever. You can have a dialogue with them one-on-one and and attempt to have some sort of rational discussion and a negotiation. That just didn't fit the model of what the Borg should be. But what they started doing later on, like with Unimatrix Zero and exploring the drones themselves in a different way, that I liked. And I love your point here about Picard, because I'm not a huge fan of the Borg element in Picard, because I feel a little bit like it was there to once again give us the Borg, because fans love it, and also as an excuse to bring Seven of Nine on the show, because fans love Seven of Nine. (laughs) But the point, yeah, the point about, and I just rewatched Picard last week, actually, all the way through, the point about how the Borg themselves are the victims and what Picard and Hugh discuss, that's great. It's great science fiction, and mm-hmm. I actually wish they could have explored that a little bit more. And I hope season two does. Because it puts a whole new spin on the Borg. Yeah, yeah I I watched season one of Picard, and then I recently... After that was over, I was writing an essay on Unity from Voyager. And I realized, oh, these are XBs. You know, what I love when later Star Trek speaks backwards to previous Star Trek and enriches the story in some ways. There's a, a backward serialization there, I guess. A backward serialization. <laughs> Chris, that's something we don't have on our outline. Wow. Talk about that. Uh, we should. You never know what's going to happen. Maybe we, some. Um, it's like a, it's like a causality this, loop. This discussion is traveling back in time. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are talking about Voyager, and we have all sorts of different anomalies that they encounter. So that's appropriate, right? We should do a whole show on anomalies. It's an anomaly caused by an anomaly. Now, there's some <laughs> storytelling in Voyager that I suppose could be another form of thematic serialization, right? Encounters with nature. Encounters with nature, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a new series, Star Trek, Encounters with Nature, airing on <laughs> National Geographic Channel. I'd watch it. Chris, while we're on this topic of serialized uh, storytelling with species interactions, what role that plays in the idea of serialization, going back to DS9, the Dominion War is what everyone thinks about. And the Dominion War, it starts later in the series, and then it closes things out. But what's very interesting, and you notice when you rewatch DS9, especially beyond your your first rewatch, as you, as you really get into the details, you really start to pick up on how they were planting the seeds, whether they knew this is where they were going to go with it or not, for the Dominion by having our characters interact with the Jim Hadar, with the Vorda, with the founders, 
which originally were going to be three possible threats. If you watch the documentary, mm-hmm. the DS9 documentary, they talk about how they didn't want to put all their eggs in one basket. So they have the founders and they have the Jim Hadar and they have the Vorda and they can all work together, but it's not a single race. It's not like at the beginning of the next generation, the Ferengi were going to be the big bad aliens, whereas mm-hmm. the Klingons were for the original series, right? But then the Klingons continue on. Mm-hmm. Or you've got just the Romulans, or you've got just the Cardassians at the beginning of Deep Space Nine. But here you've got this really interesting approach of Jim Hadar, Vorda, Changelings, who become the founders. The founders are this shadowy race that we're not sure who they are. An anti-Federation. An anti-Federation, in a sense. And the way they have contact with them, at first it's just name-dropping in episodes. And then we start to actually meet some of these aliens in various capacities. And it just builds and it builds. And then we end up in the war. And then it all comes together. So there is an example of species interaction that starts to build serialization. But I would say starts to do it at a time when the show itself isn't really serialized yet. We're still getting primarily standalone episodes, but we have threads that are beginning to run through them. Yeah, I would agree. They're just planting seeds and and hope and I think the Deep Space Nine writers were good at paying attention to what they have built before and just building off of that. Um, they remember what happens episode from episode and, and take that and run with it. Yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of that, okay, let's talk about narrative structures and how serialized narrative plot threads are organized. Like, how are they structured across the series and how does that benefit the storytelling? So my thoughts on DS9 are all over the orb. So why don't you uh, share with me how you see it? Well, DS9, uh, you know, I've only watched the whole series once complete, but I've watched episodes all over the place. I've just started my second rewatch. So I'm right at the beginning of season two. But I would say... The first two seasons are really more episodic, kind of like Deep Space Nine, I mean, TNG, but you are getting, a, I would call that period perhaps more Bajoran politics, perhaps. Maybe that's the overarching narrative structure of the, those two seasons. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, because like I said, I'm not as familiar with Deep Space Nine as a whole. When you get to th- three, you really get to planting the seeds for the Dominion War a lot more, and and you have more, I don't know, can can you speak to season three of Deep Space Nine? It feels like this intermediate place, kind of like season three of Voyager, really. Yeah, I mean, season three starts with us getting the Defiant, Mm -hmm. which was, I suppose, in a way, an acknowledgement that we needed to be able to go somewhere else a little bit more often that the runabouts were not enough. But I think that, yeah, injecting a little bit more of that action element in there 
was important. The writers have talked about the fact that they they needed a ship that was going to allow them to mm-hmm. progress some of the ideas that they had in the storytelling. It also sets in motion the idea of Odo mm-hmm. finding out who his people are, which sets up the real serialization that comes at the end of the series when we truly get into the conflict with the founders and the Dominion War starts. So maybe season three is setting the board for the Dominion War, really? It's introducing the founders a little more a little more concrete way, although they're not concrete. Yeah. I think yeah, I, I don't personally see it as like truly setting up the Dominion War, but we're starting to get more of the elements that are going to play into that. Setting up the major players. Into, yeah, maybe that's one way to look at it. Yeah. We also get a lot of great standalone episodes. And it also progresses things like Kira and Odo's relationship starts to progress a little bit. We have Heart of Stone around mm-hmm. the middle of the season, which is important for that. It also starts progressing Cisco's acceptance of his role as the emissary. You've got Destiny right there in the middle of the season also that starts to make him question a bit more whether what he at that point sees as Bajoran mythology is true. Mm -hmm. It, he starts to get a bit more interested in researching what are the prophecies and what do they mean that starts to pay off later on. You also start to have more of the, the broader galactic conflict coming into play with things like the dice cast, which I think helps lead us into the way of the warrior to start season four. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Raises the stakes. It's sort of a, maybe you could look at it as broadening the uh, scope of the series a bit more. I think what you said about Bajoran politics is pretty accurate for season one and season two, because at the beginning, there's the whole question of should the Federation be here in the first place? Should Starfleet be here? We need to chart our own course. Yeah, and now that we're free of the Cardassians. Maybe it's two things. Seasons one and two is Bajoran politics and fallout of the occupation. Those are the two yeah, major yeah. major things. And now what we've kind of dealt with that. Now we're broadening, like you said, in season three and exploring yeah. and go, we literally have a ship and we're broadening our horizons into the Gamma Quadrant. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And the politics and the dealing with the consequences of the occupation are closely tied, of course, because there's a bit of a power struggle in terms of what is the government going to be? What role is the religion going to play in the government? We have to, we have to find a new Kai. We have a attempted coup to start season two. And the Cardassians are trying to interfere with that provisional government. Right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The Cardassians are seeing how they can still play a role in that. And that, yeah, defines pretty well seasons one and two, whereas season two ends with the Jem Hadar. Mm-hmm. So we're starting to introduce this broader element. And then season three, we get a ship where we can go more places in a more traditional Star Trek sense, mm-hmm. not in a glorified shuttlecraft, but. <laughs> an actual starship. And then we grow from there. And then we deal with some, you know, in classic Star Trek form, we deal with some big social issues, past tense, of course, dealing with the world that we're living in right now. With, with season four, I feel like it's, I think Iris talked about, they were told to talk about Klingons all of a sudden. So season four is Dominion Ark, but also Klingon war. Really? Right. 
Right. So it's this odd one season. Isn't it just one season where they're they're dealing with the Klingons and then it's kind of over? Does that end? Yeah. At the, at yeah that ends in Apocalypse much, yeah. Rising in season five, I believe. Right. To start okay. season five. Yeah. Yeah. There's like there, there there's there's the cliffhanger basically, and then the culmination of it. Yeah, the Klingon War. I'm not a huge fan of Klingons. People who've listened to me over the years know that I'm not a huge fan of Klingons. I love Worf as a character, and I love Martok. The the Klingons overall, I don't know. I just I'm not that interested in their like um, internal battle that they're having with the Empire and such. But the Klingon War arc on Deep Space Nine, I just called it an arc. <laughs> because that's where we go back to the beginning, serialization versus story arc. This arc is longer than, say, the short three-episode arcs that we get in Enterprise or the three-episode arc of the Bajoran coup that we get in the Circle Trilogy to start Season 2 of DS9. But it is an arc that plays itself out. I think it was important to inject some familiar Star Trek conflict into the series for fans to get fans hooked back in. In a sense, it might be a little bit of a gimmick. You might say, I hate to use that word, but it's sort of like, okay, let's get the Klingons in here and let's bring Worf over and let's have this big conflict. But actually, I think it's important for how DS9 plays out and therefore it's part of the larger serialization because it goes back to that idea that in a time of crisis, enemies can come together and cooperate for the greater good when something bigger is at stake. And so you needed to set up the conflict between the Federation and the Klingons and have them grudgingly come back together to fight off this external threat in the form of the Dominion that comes later. So that's, again, part of building the greater story arc, the greater serialization of the series. Agreed. And it kind of goes thematic um, serialization for all of Star Trek. Like TNG presents a utopian society, but the question is how? <laughs> and Deep Space Nine kind of shows how political bodies are struggle productively to cohere and produce something more utopian together than they could have separately. Yeah, you look at TNG where the Enterprise-D is often on diplomatic missions. TNG is a lot of... The Federation is more mature now compared with the 23rd century with the original series. And now there's a lot of maintenance that goes on. Yes. There's a lot of diplomacy that goes on to hold everything together. But we don't see these powers put into a situation that becomes life or death for them all so that they truly have to work together. That's what we see happen in Deep Space Nine. Did you just call the TNG crew space janitors? No, <laughs> not call them space janitors, <laughs> but they are very much space diplomats. Gotcha. They are very much, they're not always going to new unfamiliar worlds. They're often working with people that we know the Romulans, for example, maintaining diplomacy there, or they're dealing with people who we haven't met before, but are very well known to them, very well known to the crew. 
they're not uh, the strange new world from the original series or what we get on Voyager in the Delta Quadrant. So there's there's a lot of this diplomatic maintenance that mm-hmm. happens. Similar to a lower decks, honestly, now that you mention it that way. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So That's true. That's what... So in, in The Next Generation, we see the ships working with all the worlds they already know. And then at basically the same time period, just after, we see on Lower Decks, them bringing even more new people in mm-hmm. to the Federation. So so back to the structure of Deep Space Nine, season five through seven is the Dominion War, right? I and mean, that's kind of how it shakes out. Yeah, I think season five, we're still building towards things, but then it all culminates at the end of the season with Call to Arms. And then we have that cliffhanger, then a time to stand to start season six. And from there on out, it's largely Dominion War, but it's not continuous. And that's what's interesting to me about when, when we think about it, we do tend to think that like the last couple of seasons of Deep Space Nine is this huge war that just goes on and on. And it's this ongoing story, you know, last time on Star Trek Deep Space Nine, last mm-hmm. time on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. But it really isn't. It does run through season six and seven. And there are many episodes in season six that maybe close to half of the episodes that do deal with the Dominion War but it really, really heats up in season seven. And then you've really, truly got a, a a frantic hot war going to finish out the final chapter. And it was actually marketed as the final chapter, those final 10 episodes. And if you're really interested in my thoughts on it, go over to The Orb, our Deep Space Nine podcast. Matthew Rushing and I, we did a series on the final chapter and we like really dug into each of those last 10 episodes years ago i remember watching them as you guys put those out it's really fun to dig into them and and again we talk about serialized storytelling it's really impressive how the writers managed to keep that story going week after week after week after week but we do still get some kind of standalone feeling to star trek within that ongoing narrative of the war especially on a character level, they're still able to put stuff in there that gives us, you know, a little bit of a break, a little bit of, it doesn't feel like you're being, you're being overwhelmed constantly by this war that's going on. Yeah. Yeah, It doesn't feel relentless Uh, in my head. As you were talking, I just thought, Oh, like children of time feels like a more of a Star Trek story. Which made me think, is Star Trek inherently, in my view, more episodic than the serialized stories in Deep Space Nine? That, <laughs> that's some kind of bias, I guess, I, that I might have. Well, I mean, take the two episodes from the end of Deep Space Nine. You have extreme measures. Yeah. It's very important for the resolution of the war, but it's basically a Miles and Jules buddy story right yeah yeah it just it's it's the two of them it is in a sense a standalone episode it's in a sense a bottle episode it's inside sloan's head it's a money saving episode (laughs) uh, yeah but it has huge payoff 
yeah. for our investment in the characters and the relationship mm-hmm. that that O'Brien and Bashir have with one another. For Section 31, it's the end game. Mm-hmm. Th- there's so much to it. It's very Im- impressive how they do that. Uh, I want to come back to your question about is Star Trek more of an episodic format than a serialized one? I think that should be the end of our discussion. Yeah. Before we do that, let's run through Voyager in the same way that we just ran through Deep Space Nine. Sure. Season one and two is just like the the seasons of the Kazon and the crew cohering together, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Season three, like season three of Deep Space Nine, is this in between. There's no seven of nine yet. And there's no Kazon, so it's just literally just individual stories. The Doctor's, of course, progressing um, with Darkling and real life. But I don't know if there's a narrative thread that holds season three together, really. It's really just about the characters. Yeah, I think you know, we, we do have the start of the Q, a civil war arc well no that starts spans seasons but that starts in season two death wish with quinn right and q yeah, allows that's him right. to yeah, kill himself yeah yeah and it, yeah yeah so that that is the the start of the uh mm-hmm. q civil war threat you're right and then we really get into it with the q and the gray and then q2 three. and then q2 yeah comes along later on we get uh <laughs> We finally get some character exploration of Kess, uh, one of my favorite episodes, which is before and after Mm -hmm. in season three. An interesting parallel between Voyager and DS9 is that in both series, it's in the third season and fairly close to the middle that we get their time travel stories back to the Ah. past, past tense on DS9 and future's end on Voyager. True. Which is are, are both wonderful stories. But but very different in terms of their social commentary. One's fun and one is classic Star Trek allegory. Looking at the list now, it, it, it I think I see a, a character serialization for Janeway. You know, Janeway is strong in seasons one and two, but I feel like season three she becomes more fierce. That's kind of the kind of the word I mm-hmm. use to describe Janeway a lot more now. In the shoot, she comes into the prison with a phaser rifle blazing, uh, like some kind of action hero. And then also in... She was just getting ready to fight off the uh, invaders in macrocosm. That was just, that's where I was going next. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so she's a lot more fierce. And then once we get to, you know, Scorpion, I mean, she's ready to arm the Borg to commit genocide to get her crew home. I mean, that's pretty fierce. She stares down yeah. the Borg. That's a, it's not part of our discussion today, but now that you mentioned that, it's an interesting parallel between Janeway and Archer as well, how Hmm. sort of the mindset shifts a bit, knowing that they need to try to successfully resolve the mission that they're on. Uh, In in Archer's case, it wasn't necessarily to get the crew back home. If the crew died, that could be acceptable as long as they stopped the Zindi weapon, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas for for Janeway, it was to get the crew back home safely. Well, and, and saying that, it made me think that Janeway is a lot more selfish than Archer because if Janeway's crew dies or doesn't complete their mission, it just affects them, really. If Archer fails, it affects all of humanity, right? Yeah. 
interesting point for it. That's another future discussion, maybe. For sure. Just comparing those two missions. Another thing, because we're talking about serialization or mini arcs, or uh, how do we set up uh, ongoing story threads through the series, one other thing that we get in season three is we get the setup for Year of Hell. Yes. In Before and After, where we find out about the events of the Year of Hell. And the Krenum. In a story where we have no idea that anything's being set up and that she's experiencing an actual future that they're going to end up in. That uh, I always loved Before and After. When it first aired, I loved the episode and it has always remained one of my favorites. And it was because of the the concept of the story. But I came to love it even more because of the way it set up Year of Hill. For sure. So, you know, we have uh, another Maquis story kind of with the worst case scenario. But I think I've heard you talk before. It's very lightly touched on throughout Voyager. And that's a criticism I hear generally about Voyager, that the Maquis plot and conflict is just kind of dealt with real quickly in Parallax and then Learning Curve. Yeah. For me, that's yeah, not a big that, issue. I mean, that's how I feel about it. Yeah. Me, I could go on and on about why it's okay that it goes away. Maybe that'd be another discussion. Well, I, whether it's okay that it goes away or not is, it depends on the point of how you're looking at it. It's fine that it goes away in terms of the storytelling. It's not uh, necessarily, in my opinion, fine that it goes away from a creative vision because gotcha. I've always felt that it was them backing down from their creative vision, which as a creative professional myself bothers me a bit. I feel like they wanted to be bold, but they couldn't. And especially coming off of DS9, I mean, it's overlapping, but when you looked at what was going on on DS9, to see them back away so quickly from a bold and interesting idea was disappointing to me it made sense character wise because the maquis weren't necessarily enemies of the federation they didn't agree with the political situation but then they were removed from that political situation so they just had to survive and boom they came together yeah yeah I, i would agree i think that it's realistic in that situation i think that the two sides would have come together pretty quickly because they need to for their mm-hmm. own survival. So in that sense, I don't have a problem with it uh, from a storytelling standpoint. I think it probably makes sense. But uh, they could have they could have told a very different Star Trek story. That's could true. have been a very different series. Just like Year of Hell mm-hmm. could have been a very... It, it could have been the start of a very different series. And I don't know if it's a series that I really want to watch. It, it could have really amped up the stakes and it could have become more like a Battlestar Galactica kind of situation, which I don't know that I want from Star Trek, but it was a storytelling option. And I know that there are fans who really wanted to see that. It could have been interesting to do one season of it. Like, like Enterprise had the Zindi story in season three. It could have been interesting if say, all of season four, you'd have to shift the storytelling a little bit to make this line up. But if say all of season four was the year of hell, 
and then they come out of it in season five. I, I used to want that until I was doing this Y Voyager project. And I would say season four is one of the richest sources of storytelling, diverse storytelling in Star Trek, the franchise, mm-hmm. along with like season three TNG. Mm-hmm. I would hate for those diverse stories to be lost. Yeah, same for me. So I would I would want to shift it around so we still got some of those stories, like Scientific Method, for mm-hmm. example, is one mm-hmm. of my favorite episodes. I wouldn't want to lose that. Uh, you do have stories in there that I think they wouldn't work during, well, it actually comes before the Year of Hell, but like like the Raven is important for Seven's yes. background, right? Mm-hmm. So you've still got to have that. So does that come after, do, you know, do we pick up Seven at the end of season three and then year of hell is the cliffhanger for season three. And then it leads us into a full season four. Yeah. There are some things there that you would have to shift around. Mm -hmm. And then you get the Omega directive, which is a very interesting, uh, star Trek story, especially as it plays into the mythology and it's an important character story for Janeway. And then I know it, it's one of those stories that challenges faith as well. Yeah. Among and characters. If, if fear of hell was the arc of season four, would we have lost the whole Herogen arc? I, I don't want to sacrifice that, you know? Yeah. So season, of course it could have come after that could have been in season five. True. Very true. So season four through seven kind of are marked by seven's presence on the crew. But are they marked, are they coherent in any other way as a serialized group of stories? Well, it's interesting that you ask that because when we started the discussion, I might have said, eh, not so much. But because we talked about thematic serialization and we talked about that exploration of the Borg and using the Borg in a different way, maybe so, you know, you get starting with drone uh you move through things that we encounter with seven we get into dark frontier mm-hmm. uh then we get into you know other ex- explorations of we're, we're just building up we get more of it later but maybe we're starting to build that theme a little bit yeah definitely the board runs through 4 through 7 but then I had another idea that perhaps since the overarching mission of Voyager is getting home, let's look at the seasons through that lens. And season four and five is bored, whatever we want to categorize it. But then at the end of season five, we meet another Federation vessel. In season six, we get the Pathfinder project where we start making contact that's regular and mm-hmm. that, that to me starts marking six and seven as something different. This is when we are now starting to become a little bit more of Starfleet. They even get a mission, what, in season seven, uh, Friendship One. That's their first official mission from Starfleet. And we get those Barkley episodes that connect us all the way back to the TNG and Hollow Pursuits. Mm-hmm. So yeah. maybe six and yeah. seven are the the... Connections with home seasons, that's the overall serialization of it. I don't don't know. Might be reaching there. Mm -hmm. Well, there is this progression of... That's the word. They're not only getting closer to home in terms of space and distance from home, but they're also getting closer to home in terms of... Contact. The 
prospect of making it. And I, I think like going into the series, they're 70,000 light years from home. So you know they're not going to get there by just flying in a straight line. I know it's not really a straight line in space, but they're not going to get there <laughs> by just setting a course for home and making a beeline for Earth, right? Mm-hmm. It's just not possible. They're going to have to find shortcuts. They're going to have to replenish their resources along the way. They're going to need help. And we see them get a little bit of help here and there throughout the series. Quite a lot. But I think by the time is, Endgame comes, they're only 30,000 light years away. So they knocked off 40,000, you know, in various shortcut ways. Right. Well, they do get some big boosts like from the Sicarians and Prime Factors in season one, and then Kess sends them forward. And they get these these moments where they're able to jump quite far. Slipstream technology. And they need those. Right. But yet they're still like only halfway there. Yeah. By the end, right? Basically halfway there. So then they need some kind of, of major uh, shortcut, which is what we get in Endgame. But we see this progression of it being more likely, you know, once they make contact with Starfleet again, you start to feel like, okay, it's not just them anymore. Now you've you've got people back on Earth who know that Voyager's still out there, and now they're really working on finding a way to get them back. So yeah. somehow it's going to play out. So that's a progression that you do see in the storytelling. I do still feel, though, like, especially when we compare Voyager to Deep Space Nine, mm. even through seasons five, six, seven, we're still pretty much in that episodic storytelling mode for Star Trek. It's a lot more like The Next Generation, mm-hmm. but with more threads of continuity in the storytelling, a lot more character development, many more threads on a personal level than we ever got in The Next Generation. But you can still, this is the thing, for the most part, you can still turn on any episode of Voyager, especially it's true in these later seasons, five, six, seven, mm-hmm. and watch it and just enjoy the story and feel like you've had a start and an ending. And that was a fun episode of Star Trek. With DS9, you can't do that. There, there, there are lots of episodes that you can watch that way in DS9, more, more than people think there are. Mm-hmm. But there are also a lot of episodes where if you just turned it on, you would be thinking, what's going on? It's true. And then you would get to the end and you would think, wait a minute, they didn't solve anything here. And you don't get that in Voyager. So I think that leads us into the last point we can discuss here, which is whether Star Trek is is the storytelling mission of Star Trek best fulfilled through standalone episodes or through serialized storytelling? And that's a past versus present question, actually, within the franchise, because we've gone from pure episodic storytelling in the original series to mostly still episodic storytelling in TNG to full-on, here's one season in Discovery and Picard, and it's one story, and you've just got to watch week after week after week. 
And in the case of Picard, you really don't get any break. In the case of Discovery, you get like one break each season. You got <laughs> magic to make the sanest man go mad in season one, and you got New Eden in season two. Although New Eden still ties into the overall story. So, yeah, what what's your thought on that? I think in in Discovery, season one was a little more too relentlessly plot driven for me. So when we got to season two and it seemed the first half seemed to be a lot more episodic, though they they eventually all tied together. I was excited because I felt like there is a way to find this balance of telling one overarching story in different events that are happening that don't seem to be like one minute. It's not like 24, you know, like that format where one episode ends and then that's the next, you know, hour. Yeah. So like New Eden and Onoball for Charon, I was like, oh, okay, we're getting these fresh individual stories that are going somewhere, but they're also a beginning, middle and end, like you said, which is something we crave as humans. We want that full circle storytelling, beginning, middle and end. So I think it's a balance. That's what that's what I want out of my Star Trek, because I like serialization. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm looking forward to Strange New Worlds for that reason. Yeah, my feelings on it are mixed. I think the delivery method makes a difference. Mm. Today, because of streaming, they are releasing them one episode per week in a traditional format, which I'm happy about because we can discuss it for a week and then we can watch the next one. That's important. But the seasons are short, 10 episodes, 13 episodes, 14 episodes. And if you want to, you can just wait a few months and then you can just watch the thing straight through we couldn't do that in the past when we had a season that was running you know basically from what september through may whatever and if you missed one back and, then and we you, had, you had no way to find it you have no way to watch it so then you're missing right. a piece of the puzzle yeah well and that's what i think harmed ds9 in its mm-hmm. original run it was syndicated So the time that it came on varied from place to place in cities such as where I was living in Tuscaloosa in Alabama. It came on a channel that showed baseball. So it was often preempted. They would would replay the episode later in the week usually, but you had to know when that was going to happen. So it was possible to miss an episode, sure. Mm -hmm. But... I think that uh, even if you didn't miss any episodes, the fact that it's stretched out over such a long period of time makes the experience of serialized storytelling a bit less rewarding than episodic storytelling. Whereas today, when you can watch it, when you watch the older series, since it's all there, you can just binge watch or before we had streaming, we had the DVD box sets. You can just binge watch. It's more rewarding that way. You know, enterprise season three works much better. Yes. If you just sit down and just watch it straight through than it did when it first aired. I mean, the whole series works better. (laughs) Yeah. The whole series does work better. I agree. So I think the delivery method does make a difference, but I think that for me, the reason that I love Star Trek, the reason that I became such a huge fan growing up is that the point of Star Trek is to take a social issue, 
take an element of the human condition and look at it through a different lens, Mm -hmm. which is, of course, the whole point of science fiction as a genre, as I say on so many podcasts, people probably (laughs) are tired of hearing it, but, but that is the point of science fiction, and that's the point of Star Trek. And that's why the original series still works so well. 54 years after it premiered yeah, because those stories are really focused on a particular issue. Now, the answer they come to, the resolution of the story may not stand up as well when viewed through modern eyes because our sensibilities have changed, but they take one episode and they explore that and then they come to a conclusion. And there's a rewarding aspect to that uh, as someone consuming the content, sometimes you just want to think about one topic and you want to really explore that in depth. And that's what you can do through a single episode. And you can do that through serialized storytelling, say in the format of Discovery or Picard today, when you only have 10 episodes and then once that season has run its course and you can sit down and you could just say this weekend, I'm going to watch the entire second season of Star Trek Discovery. And you just follow that red angel narrative straight through. Then you can do it. Uh, and in that sense, you're getting like a novel. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the episodic nature of TNG, TOS, Voyager, early DS9, early Enterprise, it's more akin to the short story format in science fiction mm-hmm. rather than a novel. So that's the way I see it. For for seven and a half years, I was a high school English teacher from intensive reading to AP lit. And I prefer to teach fiction through the short story because it condenses all the, the um, elements of a novel into a short space. And so in that way, it's a mm-hmm. more sophisticated piece of writing and you can get a full meal you can get several meals out of one short story for the rest of your life right you can live off of that short yeah. story and that's that's going along with what you said that's what i like to get out of star trek in fact i would often build units around star trek episodes because they would open up a whole new idea to my students yeah and that's why i prefer the short story format over novels when I explore science fiction as a genre, uh, literature. Yeah. But there is a, a type of novel that is a collection, like an anthology of short stories that are, there's links between them. And I feel like mm, we sure. see that I th- I th- maybe this new Star Trek era is maturing at storytelling. And hopefully that, that maturation culminates in Strange New Worlds, where we can see the best of both worlds come into play. Yeah. I, th- I think. They're headed that way. And with Strange New Worlds, I'm excited that it's going to be a return to episodic storytelling, but I'm not expecting it to be like the original series or even the next generation. In fact, I think it will be at least like Voyager, or it may actually have more arcs, more threads. I think running Enterprise through Season 4. Does. Enterprise Season 4 might be a more likely um, analogy or comparison, perhaps. It might be. You know, Enterprise Season 4 is kind of an odd approach. I like it, but it's different from all the other seasons of Star Trek in that 
there's a little bit of a serialized narrative running through the whole season, but for the most part, it's these very self-contained arcs of three episodes that aren't really connected to each other. There are connections on a character level, like Trip and Paul's relationship, for example. Uh, Archer's recovery from his experiences in season three. There are those elements, but it's very much like miniseries. Like me, little little novellas, basically, that you're getting. Yes. And I don't know if I see Strange New Worlds as being like that. I think I see it as being more along the lines of, uh, well, maybe that where they have, maybe this is what you're thinking, a few stories where like three episodes are connected. But I think there'll be a stronger through thread across the season as well. Gotcha. Yeah. But I, but I think the character development in Strange New Worlds is probably going to be even stronger than what we got in Voyager. Maybe it's going to be more, it's going to be different than what we got on DS9, but perhaps the depth of development might be more akin to DS9. Certainly, it's going to be much better than TNG, but just because of the nature of modern storytelling and the expectation of the audience and what the writers will want to do. And what modern viewers want to get out of characters. Yeah, exactly. I think so. All right, Chris. Well, th- this has been an interesting discussion for me. We started with these uh, key points of defining what serialization means and how it compares with story arcs and character arcs and how threads run through series and comparing DS9 and Voyager. But I think we touched on other series a bit more than we probably intended to at the beginning but the more star trek the better i've been talking about star trek on mike for 10 years now and we uncovered quite a few things that i hadn't really thought about much here so it was really fun cool i had a lot of fun too any final thoughts you want to share before we close out especially where voyager is concerned because you're always championing (laughs) respect for voyager yeah i think all i have to say to wrap this up is there's a lot more here than one person can mine on their own. And it takes discussions and interactions like this to really figure out what you believe and what you think about Star Trek and what it might mean and what kind of form it can take. So I really appreciate you having me on here to kind of mine my own thoughts about Voyager and Star Trek and Deep Space Nine. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's why podcasting is so great because we get to put our heads together and uncover things that we had not considered before, no matter how well we think we know Star Trek Mm -hmm. or how certain we think we are about something like Voyager overuse the Borg. Maybe we aren't as certain as we think. Well, and, and to plug my Why Voyager project on my YouTube channel, Completing the Shelf, I've watched Voyager for years. I grew up with it. Um, And... Until I did this project, I missed all these little things because now I'm thinking and writing essays about it and editing and all that right. kind of stuff, which uncovers a lot of details. It's a richer series than even I thought there was. So, um, yeah, we're very lucky to have these platforms to really think about something that, you know, a silly pop, pop culture or franchise, but there's a lot more here than some might think. Definitely. So, in addition to your Why Voyager YouTube series. If people want to find you, see what else you're doing, say hello, share their thoughts. 
Where should they go? Yeah, you can find me in the Babel Conference and also on Twitter at Shelf Nerds. That's where you'll find me posting six to 12 polls a day on various Star Trek topics, some very serious and some just random things put together. But hopefully it's a good time to think about Star Trek in different ways and make connections that you might not have made before. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining me, Chris. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed our discussion about serialization. And as Chris just mentioned a moment ago, the Babel Conference is a great place to share your thoughts on what we just discussed. That's our listeners group on Facebook. If you're already a member, of course, you know how to get there. But if not, just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If not, just type the Babel Conference and you'll find it. It is a closed group, so if you're joining for the first time, please be sure to answer the questions so that I can let you in. We want to make sure that it's there mainly for our listeners to continue the conversations from our podcasts and isn't just yet another Facebook group about Star Trek. So that's why we ask you the questions. So please answer those. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. That is a great place to share them. You can talk to other listeners. You can talk to me. You can talk to Chris Chaplin there about uh, what we discussed today. But there are other ways to reach us as well. If you would like to send us an email, you can go to our website, trek.fm slash contact and use the form that you find there. Choose to send to a show and choose interface and that'll come to me by email. You can also find us on Twitter. Our username for the network is trekfm. If you'd like to find me, Twitter is where I'm most active. That's my main platform. And you can find me there at C Brian Jones, letter C and Brian with a Y. That's my username pretty much everywhere in social media. Twitter is the main place, though, where I spend my time. But you'll also find me in the Babel Conference, as I mentioned. If you'd like to hear more of my thoughts on Star Trek, I do quite a few podcasts, and I have over the years. My main show is The Ready Room, which I do with Larry Nemechek, and we talk about various aspects of Star Trek, often from a business point of view. Of course, Larry has a massive amount of knowledge about the franchise going way, way, way back. So those are always fun discussions. I mentioned in this show today that I do The Orb with Matthew Rushing. That's our Deep Space Nine podcast. And also Matthew and I do Literary Treks together. That's where we talk about Star Trek books and comics, and we interview authors as their books come out. And you can also hear my thoughts on Discovery on The Edge. That's our Star Trek Discovery podcast. I did notes from The Edge for season one. I wasn't able to do it yet for season two, but I am planning to do it for season three as the episodes drop the way I did for season one, and then eventually go back and do season two also. So check out all of those podcasts if you're interested in more of my views on Star Trek, stretching all the way back 10 years here on the network. If you'd like to help us keep these shows going, we could definitely use your help. It takes a lot of money to operate the network, to produce the shows, to cover the bandwidth, to get them out to you. We are having a hard time here through the pandemic, so your help is greatly appreciated. If you'd like to find out how you can support us, please go to patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. We have various perks. I'm working on 
updating those right now, but uh, two that are very popular are, of course, becoming an associate producer of your favorite show and taking part in the Patrons Roundtable, where you can get on mic with fellow listeners and hosts and talk about Star Trek just the way that Chris and I did today. So to find out how you can do that, please go to patreon.com slash trekfm. And I'd like to thank everyone who is supporting the network right now. We really could not do this without you. Really means a great deal to us. So thank you for your support. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. And join us again next time as we explore the Star Trek universe. Star Trek.